last week Dalton said that uh, if if we thought directors was agonizing to compile, then this week was much worse. Was this harder than directors? Yeah, in some ways, because I had to sort of think about. Because I mean, my favorite directors are my favorite directors, right? Mm -hmm. It's just coming down to which ones are the ones. Yeah, for that. When you're saying I'm teaching the '90s, well, am I teaching? The 90s as a cultural moment? Am I teaching the history of the 90s? I mean, to what extent is a movie like Primary Colors a big deal if you're going to teach the 90s? You mm. think about the Clintons, right? So there's that kind of theory of the 90s. There's a just what are the most influential films of the 90s or the most 90s of the 90s? Mm-hmm. See, that's where I found myself was looking somewhere between what is like the most influential and what is like supremely the 90s and what feels like. I really tried to think about this as a dec- a transitional decade. I tried mm-hmm. to think about the 1990s as a moment where we are ending the 20th century and looking ahead to what the 21st century holds. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, 9-11 hasn't happened yet. We don't know what the 21st century will look like. We still think history is over and that capitalism has won and that we're just the American order will now proceed. So it is, I tried to think about that, about sort of the the end of history take on the 90s and sort of films that reflected that. Well, and the other thing I had, you know, there's like major art movements in the 90s, you know, so you got Dogma 95 in Denmark, you've got the independent cinema Sundance thing going on in America. You've got just the idea of, well, what's America when what's going on in the rest of the world? Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a challenging thing. And so you had to sort of pick a thesis first, I think, and then go from there. I think mine was a real big focus on that transitional thing you mentioned like mm-hmm. the 90s is this kind of crux on a lot of things right i mean it is this we've talked often about how it is this very existential decade especially by the end right like you mentioned we america has become especially american cinema that's kind of where i'm mostly coming from here i think primarily only coming from american yeah, cinema, I, I focused on american cinema. right and it is that idea of America is the leader of the free world. We are at the top of the mountain. Nothing can top touch us. We can't be hurt anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, cue two years later, and the whole thing shifts. And nineties, in a lot of ways, mark the end of some things, and it mark, unfortunately, the beginning of some moves. And so I'm kind of focused on a lot of that. I think through through my list. Yeah, I thought about like. The, the the independent cinema thing too definitely did mm-hmm. that yeah um, yeah big time because I mean, that's yeah. such a big part of the nineties yep. and yeah internet stuff what about you I was I I guess we needed to say who we are and what we're doing before we go any further this is the good trash honor cast we usually do movies but we're just doing a list for the summer and we're doing a nineties movie syllabus list you saw it on the label but I'm still Dustin I'm Martha Gordon eighty five at yahoo dot com uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Hotmail because I'm a Hotmail. <laughs> I had a Yahoo. Did I have a Yahoo or a Hotmail first? I think I had a, a Yahoo first. I had an SBC Global. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, fancy uh, over assigned, here. <laughs> those assigned <laughs> servers. Internet provider server. Where'd yeah. you get your start? I got my start on Windows 3.1. <laughs> this guy's running DOS over <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, an Apple TV. He talked about his floppy disk the other day. He told me all about the size of it and I, everything. Well, because of my day job, I'm still running on DOS, too. <laughs> hey, I saw a meme where someone had found a three and a quarter floppy, and they said, look, somebody 3D printed a save button. That's really funny. And I nearly died. Uh, hi, I'm Dalton, by the way. Hi, Dalton. I am Arthur. It was in my email address, but just in case you didn't know. I, I'm still Dustin, I think. I don't know what's happening um, So anymore. yeah, this is uh, year two of the Summer of Lists, where we give ourselves July off from watching movies, and we just assemble some lists for you. 
last year we did our top 100s, sort of a big kickoff for our 10th anniversary. Last week we did our top 10 favorite directors, and now we will be teaching you a little something about the end of the 20th century. That's right. So uh, before we do our list, we'll do we'll just go movie by movie uh, against a, just 10 down. Uh, you can talk about whether or not your movies are ranked, but give us the thesis of your lists first, Arthur. What's, your, what's the thesis of your list? Or what's the, the shape of it, I guess? Uh, that's just kind of talked about is that transitional points. I, you know, the ending of some things in the beginning or reshaping of others. But it is, you know, really kind of based around if I were to teach a class, a 10-week class on the 90s, you know, or a 10-module class in the 90s, here are the 10 things we would probably hit on and the movies that sort of epitomize or represent that. All right, what's your theory, Dalton? I tried to look at a list that reflected the 90s. So I definitely wanted to talk about some of the history and context. And again, this is an American-centric list, so I I wanted to specifically think about what's going on in America in the 90s. Uh, So, um, well, I won't mention specific events. We'll talk about when I I talk about those movies. I think really mine may be very production-based and business-oriented. Interesting. I think. Mine is about history and culture, but everywhere but America. I yeah. decided to just leave America entirely. Well, you knew we were going to cover yeah. that, so, so good. I'm this, glad you did. This, this is better than us. So. This, this, nah, this is nonsense. This, this is a world survey of what's going on on the whole planet uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, is what I'm going to do. For That's mine. probably fair. Yeah, and this is, I guess, so yours is sort of a production history film in the 90s. Mine's sort of an American social history, and yours is sort of a, a look at world cinema in the 90s. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if ours will intersect at all. I don't think we'll intersect with him at all. I think we might have some overlaps. Yeah, we'll there see. is not a single American film on my list. So Yeah, that's fair. There's, okay. Well, it's totally wrong then. Well, do you want to kick us off then since you've got uh, sort of the uh, fancy yeah, list? We can start with fancy list. No, I'm just, uh, what's going on in the 90s? And I thought about Sundance and Indy and that kind of stuff. And one of the things that was going on with Sundance and Indy was the uh, importation and buying of films. And so international films do make their way to mm-hmm. Sundance. And one of the most famous successes... Uh, that uh, of that ilk was Chunking Express from Wong Kar Wai. And nice. so beginning with that sort of interesting uh, sort of crime adjacent kind of style, kind of love story, but also just a lot of stuff happening uh, in that film. And I, I really like Chunking Express. I like Wong Kar Wai a lot. And so I think just to begin, this is some of what's going on internationally in terms of film marketing and film distribution and how those films find their audiences across international lines and so this is the beginning of a rise of a real kind of international cinema and so i think by beginning with chunking express we we start the students with something that's a little bit more palatable and easily digestible and then move from there so that's number one for me what's number one for you art um so yeah i mean starting again in the same vein of the independent cinema and this is you know week one independent cinema part one and we're looking at the early part of the 90s and thinking about how um, independent cinema really opens up a platform where anybody can make films in a way, you know, we've already seen that with the new Hollywood, right? You can go out and buy a camera, you can raise money, you can do movies in a new way. Uh, and that's a big part of the new Hollywood. But in the 90s, uh, the ability to get that movie in front of people, I think, reaches new levels when we arrive with something like Sundance, where your film can be shown and then picked up for distribution, uh, which really kind of shape, reshifts the distribution model as it was understood and known. Uh, and, and no better example is there than Clerks from Kevin Smith, who yeah. you know maxes out all of his credit cards uh, to make this movie 
that um, shoestring budget, but really spoke to a generation of, of Gen Xers and, and elder millennials uh, who are caught in this dead end day to day, you know, a job they don't love, uh, relationship woes, feeling beat down that, you know, I'm not even supposed to be here today and nobody respects me. My girlfriend doesn't respect me. My boss doesn't respect me. My customers don't respect me. Uh, it really has, I think it's, you know, Kevin Smith, I don't know, has aged super well, you know, but um, I think Clerks still really speaks to a moment in time in a way that's very relatable now and very funny. It really captures that 90s ennui, the sort of catchphrase of the 90s Gen Xer was yeah. whatever, yeah. man. Right. And it's kind of that, yeah. And, and, I mean, speaking to the idea, I mean, more so than anybody at probably Sundance, uh, more famously than Kevin Smith, who literally was an everyman, maxed out credit cards, mm -hmm. bought a cheap camera, grabbed some friends and said, hey, let's make a movie and really kind of branched out the timeline, I think. That's my number 10 as well, Arthur. Yeah. Yeah, I think more than... I guess Sex, Lies, and Videotape is 89, isn't it? Yeah. Um, right. But but more than Sex, Lies, and Videotape in 89 and Reservoir Dogs in 92, mm -hmm. I mean, Soderbergh and QT are sort of like... I, this is I don't mean this is a dig on Kevin Smith, but they are more highbrow. They're they're smart for lack yeah. of a better way to put it. Yeah. Uh, and Tarantino's a dumb guy, like capital D dumb guy. I, I know dumb guys. I know about dumb guys. That's a dumb dude. But you know he knows film. Mm -hmm. And and I think Kevin Smith would kind of lump himself in as as a dumb guy. I think he would be fine with that because that is it's sort of dumb guy cinema. And I'm saying yeah. that with love. Yeah. Because it is about. And I mean, it, is, an every, it was an every man of exactly, voice of the people. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I think he kind of like is a better touchstone than something like Reservoir Dogs. Because yeah. even though, you know, he's got sort of a similar like I worked in the video store and that's how I learned movies like T he he. Yeah. He still like immediately comes out of the gate and everybody's like, oh, wow, what a genius. Yeah. And with with clerks, it is more people are like, wow, isn't that impressive that he pulled that off? Yeah. And, and I think that, that is like a much more interesting story. It gives hope to people like the it's always sunny in philadelphia crew exactly right who do sure. the exact same thing precisely yeah yeah they're not getting work as actors and so they say fuck it we're gonna have to make our own thing yep and and that's what works here uh and this also is kind of my reality bites pick as well you know i didn't i didn't want to pick that film not just because it's kind of played out for lack of a better way to put it is sort of kind of quintessentially an american studio 90s movie about gen x i don't think we've had that film for millennials or Gen Z yet that reality bites really is like considered at for, for years. I mean, in the nineties when it came out, it was considered this. And I think for years after it kind of stayed that, but I think clerks, I know it's no movie stars, you know, it's, it is like feels so much more grounded than something like reality bites mm -hmm. in, in. And again, like maybe it is because it's got a smaller cast and it's only covering like one day. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, less upwardly mobile people. You know, we've got we've got a yuppie in Reality Bites. We've got people graduating college. This is a film about college dropouts, uh, about people who like have are in their late teens, early 20s and truly no idea what's next. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm with you, Arthur, that it is just an exciting film in terms of like the, the story. It is, you know, much like something like El Mariachi too like there's there's a cool narrative here and i think this film like works really well as sort of a film that allows you to pull in these other independent pictures that we've referenced and the, these other starts in cinema that we referenced uh because this really does sort of pave the way for the democratization of of media that is going to be the internet in some ways so this this not only is it showing the dominance of sundance in the 90s it is also forecasting things to yep. come which i think is interesting yeah. 
shall we move on? Well, I guess we should move on. So my next film that I would do on week two of this 10-week module, uh, thinking about the sort of end of history, anticipating the sort of fall of the Soviet mm-hmm. Well, I guess we're just after the moments of the fall of the Soviet Union, but also the, the fall of those various Eastern European bloc nations. Uh, it's Haroon Faraki's Videograms of, an, of a Revolution, uh, which is an experimental film insofar as it's a found footage film. It's all brought from uh, video... Uh, just handheld video recordings and television recordings of the fall of the Ceausescu's in Romania. And uh, so sort of thinking about that particular revolution and the revolutionary mindset of Eastern Europe at that time, the what will give rise to Fukuyama's thesis of the end of history. And so uh, for me, that would be the next film to really sort of contextualize, uh, especially the European West, uh, what's going on there with uh, just the world and also the ways in which uh, this democratization of uh, the medium that we're, we're getting in the place of handheld VCRs and video recording systems and cassette recording. And so we're getting into that mode as well and uh, different modes of storytelling, uh, which, which sort of lends itself a little bit over to that independent cinema thing that's going on in America, but just what's going to be anticipating with like something later on, like Blair Witch Project. Uh, so that would be the dots I would connect in that week, looking at uh, Harun Faraki's uh, incredible little film, uh, Videograms of a Revolution. So what's going on week two for you, Arthur? Uh, well, week two is going to be the continuation and finalization of independent cinema in the 90s. Uh, and we're going to come to 98. We're actually going to take a look at Tamara Jenkins' uh, Slums of Beverly Hills. Uh, Jenkins writes that in a Sundance lab, uh, Redford approaches her about getting it made, and he signs off as an EP on that uh, to get it done. And I think that, one, we see uh, in Jenkins' own uh, career and life the impact of the indie system and Sundance and how that grants opportunities to new voices and new ideas getting made that traditionally would be overlooked by studios. Um, But also I think it comes at a point by the late nineties that denotes a certain style, aesthetic look and element that independent movies had. There's a way in which independent movie becomes like a genre rather than just a financial marker, right? Yeah. They're quirky. They have a certain aesthetic. There's a certain type of actor that's going to show up. Right. And the aesthetics of Twee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's that thing going on. And I think Slum of Beverly Hills, and you could do But I'm a Cheerleader, you could do these other movies, but Slum of Beverly Hills, again, another Natasha Leone, right? This kind of image, this person of the independent cinema who's done some blockbuster, blockbuster stuff, but is also doing these smaller, mm. interesting roles because she's not a traditional leading lady, right? She has that voice, that look, and, and there's something very charismatic about her. But I think it represents, as uh, on a whole, this sh- almost aesthetic shift into what the independent movie becomes, and we see this again, especially throughout the aughts, right? And I think Lars and the Real Girl is another good example of how this aesthetic maintains a certain look, a certain style, a certain uh, quirkiness represents independent cinema through the aughts, right? And it really, I think, shifts again when we get to A twenty four. Sorry, A twenty four a little later on. Um, but there's a very defined style and aesthetic and look in the, uh, that comes out of the nineties in independent cinema. And I think we begin to see a shift in style in tone and the types of stories being told, at least at the independent level, uh, that are a little contrary to what, I mean, 
sex lives videotapes and you know reservoir dogs late 80s early 90s to slums of beverly hills or butt of my cheerleader i mean drastically different ends Mm -hmm. but drastically different voices Mm -hmm. telling these stories as well you're really making me think a lot about wes anderson yeah sort of like the move from i mean yeah bottle rocket comes out in the 90s right and yep but but he also like takes this sort of tweeness and like is you know, his films are still released by like focus features and the yeah. indie imprint of bigger studios. Yeah. But when you get down to brass tacks, there are twenty five million dollar movies with star studded casts, and yet they are still sort of harkening back to this very nineties indie movement in yeah. some ways. Yep. It's, in- it's interesting. Yeah. Is all. Um, very cool. So what's going on week two for you, Dalton? Well, we're just gonna go ahead and skip right ahead to the end of the nineties. I could have closed here, but let's just let's let's skip all the foreplay and talk about the matrix yeah. um, because we have to talk about it. If we're going to do a class about American cinema in the 1990s. And so let's, let's go ahead and, and get out of independent film and talk about sort of big budget filmmaking that doesn't quite happen anymore. You know, I say big budget. This is kind of a medium budget movie. Even when it comes out, uh, they've got sort of a limited budget. They spend up all their money to get more money. And, and it is very interesting. This, how this almost, telegraphs what we'll see with Marvel and indie filmmakers in the aughts and the teens, right? Because you've got the Wachowskis coming off of Bound in 95? Mid-90s, mm-hmm. uh, which is not an independent film. You know, they've they've written Assassins for a studio, so, like, they've they've been trying to get at a studio gigs for a while, and Bound is, you know, this, this smaller... Uh, I forget who releases that. But Bound is this smaller film, and they they upgrade to The Matrix on, on feature number two. And... Obviously, you know, all the stuff with the Internet. I mean, the, the film is like so much commenting on the late 20th century, right? You even have this moment where uh, Morpheus sits Neo down and says, ah, yes, the late 20th century, the peak of human civilization. And when he says it and you watch it 25 years later, you think to yourself, well, it doesn't sound wrong. It sure seems like it's all been downhill from there. Uh especially if you're looking at it in an American lens, right, where you're watching a once great nation crumble uh, because of a lack of infrastructure, because of a lack of uh, appropriate spending. You you really see this sort of end of history moment that we, we talk about with the 90s and, and sort of this unknowingness that comes with the Matrix, that comes with this idea of everything you were seeing is a reproduction and not only is it a reproduction, but the real thing itself might have been uh, ephemeral to begin with. And and that is such an interesting place for the movie to to talk from. Again, Dustin would be able to speak on this better than I can, but uh, a lot of the sort of metatextual references within the film to, you know, Baudrillard and philosophy and, and sort of the reproduction of images and the reproduction of symbols, uh, all of this stuff is like, heavy heavy in the 90s right? right it's not just the end of history that we're talking about but we're talking about like postmodernism's been going on for 50 years at this yeah. point yeah like it's we really are like postmodernism is almost starting to become it's it's the second thing that we we've uh temporality is a term i've heard thrown around a lot uh lately in places like uh nerd writer i don't know if you're familiar with that youtube channel um i think it was him but uh, i know we've talked a lot of in recent years about what comes after postmodernism and are are we already starting to see the beginnings of that? And I think even as early as the matrix, you start to see this between the sort of the, um, transmedia storytelling aspect of it, the sort of indie origins 
all it starts with Indie Origins and becomes this watershed IP for Warner Brothers. Uh, and, and all of this is kind of interrelated and, and, and it speaks to itself and about other things in ways that are really, really interesting. And I think useful for a discussion of the 90s and like what's going on in media. Um, and again, yeah, it's just a kick-ass movie, but yeah. also, and, 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 you know, maintains and like it's, it's a cultural legacy, like speaks for itself. But I think that there's a lot you can get into when you start asking like, why is it an, an essential 90s movie? I was today years old when I figured out that in order to access, this is just a funny bit from the brilliant writing of the Matrix, uh, internet culture thing. Yeah. In order to talk to the Oracle, Neo has to accept a cookie. Yeah. Right? That's just good. Yeah. Uh, it's very fun. That time. is, uh, hey, I had never thought about that. That's great. Yeah. You have to Love accept, that. You have to accept a cookie in order to access the info. Well, and I mean, like, Seraph in Matrix 2 is like literally a captcha. Yeah, right? yeah. He has to test if, if he's really the one. Right, yeah. But by fighting him. <laughs> it's good stuff. Because only a human could fight. In a, yeah, it's yeah. just wild. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything. I mean, we've talked about this movie ad nauseum over the last 10 years, so we can yeah. move on. It's a great movie. Uh, moving on then to number three. Th- week three for me is more context, but via film. Uh, and that's where we're going to go to Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke to talk about uh, environmentalism, for one thing, which is a big sort of movement that's really gaining a lot of steam, all the Captain Planet, all the... Mm-hmm a number of things in the States, but also this sort of interesting distrust of all leaders. It's, it's sort of the Dr. Strangelove effect of the entirety of the 90s, that we sort of assume that everybody in charge is somehow nefarious. And there's a sort of real strong anti-authoritarian bent uh, at the heart of the 90s. And Mononoke sort of captures quite a lot of that. And also just the what's going on in Ghibli uh, in the 90s and uh, Japanese animation, the rise of anime itself as a form of storytelling in a less science fiction kind of sense which is sort of the more popular way to think of it. But uh, there's also fantasy storytelling that's pretty uh, high level as well with Miyazaki. So Princess Mononoke would come in at week three, highlighting environmentalism and that, again, sort of general distrust of leadership. Uh, that's going on pretty heavily at the 90s, despite uh, the fact that, you know, even in the States, you know, the the, the country's won, but uh, you have the X-Files and that kind mm-hmm. of general distrust going on there as well. So uh, that's it for week three for me. What's week three for you, Arthur? Uh, week three for me, uh, we're going to move into maybe talking a bit about production design and shifts in style uh, visually, and we're going to talk about Seven. We're going to talk about David Fincher, um, who kind of, with that, singularly redefines what movies in the 90s and on look like. Yeah. Um, maybe for better, maybe for worse at times. Um, but I think it speaks also a bit to as Dalton was mentioning with the matrix, this kind of crumbling infrastructure, this uncertainty in America. I think the, you know, we talk about that mise en scene of a David Fincher, that production design of David Fincher and how that underscores thematically. Yeah. yeah, What's going on both within seven, but I think both within the country, at least uh, in larger areas uh, nationwide and concerns, fears, uncertainties, this kind of existential dread that's creeping in. Uh, post eighties, you know, uh, you know, who are we as a people, as a culture, as a community, as a society in America? Uh, and that's all really wrapped up well in the production design and look and visual style of seven, which is dirty, which is dark, which is rainy and grimy, uh, with fun titles, Mm -hmm. right? Which we don't really get much. I was lamenting, uh, to you, I think last week, we don't really get title sequences anymore. Uh, and, but we get some good ones with seven, I think. And so, 
it, it really does influence, uh, I think, production design, mm-hmm. uh, cinematographers, directors for the to, next decade or so. Definitely. You and know? it speaks to American religiosity. Yeah. And sort of it. And, yeah. And the ways in which that can become very nasty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think so. So. Uh, yeah, I think we'd talk seven. Yeah, very good, very good. What comes into week three for you, Dalton? Uh, we're going to pivot back to independent film and sort of like synthesize Clerks and The Matrix and look at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice, uh, nice. For a while, one of the most profitable independent films ever for made. For a long time. Yeah. Very long time. I mean, time. yeah. For decades. Yeah. Um, how does this violent, weird indie comic book turn into a family-friendly indie family-friendly indie film that in a few short weeks will have its like eighth feature film be released in theaters from Nickelodeon Studios. Mm-hmm. How does this happen? How, what? Speak to me, 90s. Tell me your secrets. Um, and I think the the trajectory of Teenage Mutant Ninja, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles speaks to the trajectory of The Matrix in sort of interesting and complementary ways. You know, one comes out in 90, one comes out in 99, both become multimedia billion dollar franchises. One starts out as a, you know, upper middle budget studio movie, one starts out as an indie film, but they both are very much about sort of found family, anti-authoritarianism, martial arts, uh self-knowledge, uh really interesting kind of companion films, I think. Uh but I, again like from the sort of IP standpoint, TMNT is really interesting because it mm-hmm. it speaks to something that has not happened yet, but is starting to happen in 1990. Mm-hmm. Because we've got, you know, let's say, I mean, we're nine years out from some Star Wars prequels. Mm-hmm. We're one year out from the conclusion of the Indiana Jones trilogy that will become a five-movie series before it's all said and done. We are really at the beginning of, oh, fuck, We've built the entire industry on summer tent poles since Jaws came out, and we are now one year out from Batman. Uh, comic books are the new hotness. What do we got? And lo and behold, you have this weird little indie movie from Jim, that gets some cooperation from Jim Henson Studios, and they make some of the coolest puppets and coolest suits that have ever been in an American film, and really become this weird pizza commercial slash toy commercial that speaks to multiple generations for some reason. And it's a co-production with uh, Golden Harvest from Hong Kong as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so right there you get some really interesting sort of international cooperation uh, and and what that looks like at the international level because you won't you'll start to see that in The Matrix with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Yin Wu Ping coming over from the Hong Kong fight uh, choreography world uh, to help out on the matrix and to choreograph for the matrix. So yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't even realize the gold harvest uh, tidbit there. So glad yeah. you brought that up. Uh, yeah, that's, that's TMNT. Very good. Very good. So in week four for me, uh, want to look about youth culture and also want, wait, wait, wait. three, what I say? Oh, you said week four. Oh yeah. He yeah sorry. It. He started. I'm sorry. starting. Yeah. I'm back we're, to four. Different rotation than last yeah, week. Yeah, that's sorry. right. So week four, uh, for me, we're going to France, uh, looking at youth culture, but also looking at protests of unrest and police brutality, which are also sort of big hot button issues in the nineties. Uh, Rodney King stuff's going on in America. We have all these kind of conversations going on as well. WTO, uh, protests in Seattle were a big deal in the nineties. And you see seeds of this at work in 1995's La Haine, uh, by Matthew Cassavetes, uh, which is a story about three boys of different ethnic backgrounds, sort of trying to walk their way through a French band Lou 
during uh, the uh, the day after a massive protest. And so it's it's got Goodfellas DNA, it's got Tarantino DNA, and it's also got, it's shot in black and white, so it's got this weird kind of visual analog to Clerks as well. But either of you seen Lahane? I didn't know if you had. That was one. The probably my I'm be- familiar. I've heard of it. My best chance, probably, for a movie that you'd seen. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Lahane's great, and uh, which means hate in uh, French. And so, yeah, recommend Lahane a lot. And it's an interesting sort of interplay. Uh, again, just what's going on culturally the world over in the '90s. Mm-hmm. It is not just America that's experiencing some of the same tensions uh, that we're experiencing over here. So that's uh, week four for me. What's week four for you, Arthur? Uh, by the mid '90s, um, Disney uh, was sort of at its final legs of its heyday. We we get uh, Aladdin, and then we get Lion King, kind of back to back, and then they've got one more kind of good one in their belt when Tarzan comes out a few years later. But a, a shift happens in '95 uh, with the rise of a new company uh, that changes the history of animation and, and movie making in, in many ways. And that is Pixar's toy story. Uh, we got to talk about Pixar. We're going to talk about uh, last year. We're going to talk about toy story. We're going to talk about the shift to CG from traditional animation. It had already started creeping in, in some ways. Uh, we see it, you know, implemented in some Disney films. Uh, but now we're getting feature length, uh, CG, I, uh, films. And so we're going to talk about that and how that kind of, I mean, changes the, the course of history for Disney, for other studios as well. You can't well. beat them, buy them. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and which becomes a thing a few years later, they start distributing Pixar and then ultimately just go ahead and finish the transaction, uh, to make them part of the house of mouse. Uh, but toy story really, I mean, breathes new life, I think into, uh, animation in a way that you know Disney was riding pretty high in the early 90s uh, but once Toy Story enters the picture I think that sort of changed the trajectory you've got to uh, evolve or die and Disney begins to start to fail uh, in, in the aftermath of that you know Tarzan does well but then it really starts to peter out and so I think there's a really interesting uh, crossfade that happens there as these two begin to come up against one another and how that has maybe for better or worse impacted uh, filmmaking on the whole. We haven't really talked a lot about visual effects and and what that looks like in the 90s, but, I mean, that's really an experimental age and era of it, and, uh, you know, Toy Story is a big part of that. Yeah, oh, big time. And then, obviously, the previously mentioned The Matrix, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These are big moments in, in integrating computers with filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next up for me is But I'm a Cheerleader, which Arthur has already mentioned and sort of a companion film with the slums of Beverly Hills. Uh, yeah, I mean, Natasha Leone is sort of one of our great 90s darlings, I think. You know, I mean, between the the indie classics that are But I'm a Cheerleader in Slums of Beverly Hills to the, uh, the big studio success of American Pie, mm-hmm. she sort of becomes a, an actor that, it you know, it takes the industry 15, 20 years to figure out what to do with her sort of endless charm. Yeah. Uh, but this film figures out a way to work with, you know, and she's an actor still figuring out like what her deal is anyway. And, mm-hmm. but I'm a cheerleader, which I think makes her performance so fun because she is sort of, you know, she doesn't, you get to watch the performance from modern eyes and knowing like what sort of choices she'll make with her career. And you get to watch 
her play this very unsure of herself character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I chose this film because I think, you know, the 90s are a great decade for queer cinema. Uh, you've got Gregor Rocky doing a lot of his stuff uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, and, you know, you just slowly but surely have a greater comfort with queerness in American cinema start to take hold. Uh, obviously there's, you know, big moments like boys don't cry. Uh, but that, that is unfortunately what you get a lot of in the nineties is sort of these, these queer tragedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's all, it's, you know, a lot of the, the barrier gaze trope in the nineties. And, and what we get with, but I'm a cheerleader is, is a film that speaks to those problems that speaks to sort of the sadder, uh, angles you could look at when it comes to queer storytelling and this film says yeah but what if we had a happy ending what if we dealt with all that shitty stuff but we kept it light and kept it fun and gave everyone a happy ending to go out on uh and i say that's a good time uh but this again also is important for independent film stuff that we've already talked about uh again interesting when we talk about cult cinema a lot of great cult entries in the 90s a lot of films that don't find their audience right when they're released and i think early internet has a lot to do with that you know uh the sort of you know these these films that get released early on in the lifespan of the internet kind of find their way into internet culture and then you know by the time streaming video happens in the 20 teens some of these films already have had fan bases form around them in the, in the years between the 90s and the 20 teens so i think it's just kind of interesting to see how to to you know again look at a, a, an sort of one of the er examples of 90s cult cinema and, and kind of examine like how these things have lifespans that carry on, uh, even if they can't quite find their audience right away. Uh, and again, just if, like production design wise, just a really fun movie. And again, allows us to talk about some of that, that indie look stuff that Arthur's already mentioned. You know, I'm, I'm continuing with the same kind of theme because uh, my week five pick, I'm thinking about identity politics and how they begin to rise in the 90s. Sure. Uh, specifically uh, about these sort of queer issues uh, that you bring up here. Well, and right, the, I mean, we're, we're at the end of the AIDS epidemic and it's not the end, but like it, we just lived through a decade of it. And it, it's it's conversations that are being forced. Right. Right. right because absolutely. Because of a ignorance by society and there are two great entries from australia for this but um i did not end up going with muriel's wedding which i like a lot mm-hmm. i went with the more crowd-pleasing fun time which is the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert uh hugo weaving guy pierce terrence stamp as drag queens mm-hmm. uh going to this like way out in the boondocks of the bush of of central Af- uh, australia to uh put on a show and hilarity and uh heart ensues and so love priscilla queen of the desert anyway i think it's just a very very good time and it's another one of those sort of 90s films that you know again you've mentioned uh, a couple of those i might also mention the birdcage uh as another one of these movies that does uh the same kind of stuff uh, alongside crying games and uh, alongside uh boys don't cry and and uh but i'm a cheerleader but um interesting australian uh, and a very very thoroughly australian version of telling that kind of story as opposed and again i don't feel the australian is quite as strongly in muriel's wedding with tony collette even though i love tony collette um so that's why i ended up going with that pick for that but that would be the moment where we start thinking about those various kinds of identity politics and uh, how they sort of find their expression uh in cinema and again a trip to the antipodean uh, south there and uh seeing something australian and also Hugo Weaving and Drag. It's a good time. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there you go. Uh, what I goes think I'm up? more interested in Terry Stamp and Drag. Well, uh, and of course, I want to see what Guy Pierce has got going on. So, uh, yeah. Guy Pierce is the most flamboyant of the characters. I figured he would be. And, I, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, Terry Stamp is such a British gangster cool guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's the limey. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interesting. It's it's a good time. It's a good yeah. time. What's going on week five for you, Arthur? Uh, well, uh, we've talked a lot about indie cinema, uh, and I'm going to pivot real hard right now uh, because this movie is going to give me a chance to talk about two things. Uh, the first is, I think, um, the the last of the movie star. Okay. In many ways. Um, I don't think this man's the last movie star because I think that's Tom Cruise, but I think he's the last of an era of, of movie star. Mm. Uh, and, and then also I think the peak of the blockbuster uh, as well, um, because I think there's a weird shift that happens with blockbusters and tent poles. And you've already spoke to it. Some uh, that happens post nineties. Um, and so we're going to talk about bad boys. I was trying I to read your mind. I knew it was Will Smith. Bay I didn't know what the here. movie yeah. was. Yeah. So I think, you, you know, there are, you know, obviously we can still talk about A-list celebrities. There are people who open, you know, Chris Pratt opens movies very well. Um, but there's, you think about the idea of the movie star, you go back and you think of uh, Gable, you think of Bogart, you think of those people who were really, you know, had these personas that they kind of live both on and off screen, right? If they were, you know, almost like wrestling, you talk about kayfabe. Mm-hmm. You know, Bogart was kind of Bogart in public, right? And the Bogart in public was the Bogart of the movies, who was not necessarily the Bogart behind closed doors. And I think you still see some remnants of that through time. Uh, The new Hollywood, I think, as we move away from the studio and the reliance on stars, Mm -hmm. really takes it away. But there's still a few, right? You get a Tom Cruise, who is kind of Tom Cruise every time he's on screen, and he's doing Tom Cruise things. You know, you have Denzel, who's in that same field. Uh, And... I think Will Smith's really the last one, right? We try to recapture this a little later with The Rock, who's kind of in the later part, early part of the aughts with this. Um, But there is something about Will Smith who is very dedicated to his brand, how he is presented on screen, Mm -hmm. and and really comes to power in the mid-90s, right? He's coming Mm -hmm. off Fresh Prince. He does this. He does Men in Black. He does Independence Day. I mean, just into the stratosphere. Yeah. And, And really that goodwill carries him for a good decade or so uh, as he continues to kind of cultivate these projects before taking some risks with his, his choices. Um, and so I think that's one thing we talk about. We'd also talk about the shift in blockbusters. You know, we've talked, you mentioned jaws, which kind of sets up this idea of the blockbuster, the summer blockbuster, which carries us through the nineties. And I think the nineties, is really a peak time for the blockbuster. Totally. Uh, I mean, again, Independence Day, Armageddon, these, I mean, just huge movies, Titanic even, right? Um, and that all kind of gets lost uh, by the 2000s, I think. It feels like there's been several different shifts. Uh, one, I think, playing a little safer with what's being released. Studios are a little more hesitant post 9-11 to do certain things, to take certain risks. And so you have standouts, uh, but you also have the rise of the comic book movie, um, which we'll come back to a little later. But I think that Michael Bay specifically, and I pick Bad Boys because it allows me to kind of talk about both of these things. But Michael Bay, I think, is kind of the peak blockbuster director. And Will Smith is kind of the last true movie star uh, before a total shift in uh, the paradigm that that takes us into the next decade, and so I, I think Bad Boys is a good representation of both of their their works. That is why we would put it here. If I was talking about Just Bay, I might do Armageddon. If I was talking about Just Smith, I might do something else. But I think this movie kind of represents several different things that are taking place 
in the middle of the 90s in, in studio filmmaking. Very good, very good. What comes in at uh, week five for you, Dalton? So I, I want to stay in sort of the concerns of 90s identity politics lane. Uh, that's sort of where I want to stay. But I'm also interested in, you know, that we've talked about the journey of different filmmakers in the 90s, and we've talked a lot about indie films, but what we haven't talked about is people getting scooped up right out of film school. And oh, sure. So this yeah, next yeah. film is John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, could could very much be an 80s movie. Like, again, it is speaking to uh, aspects of the crack epidemic, which becomes like a big talking point in the 80s. But we're still feeling the after effects of that in the early 90s in a real way. And we are just at the, you know, getting ready to gear up for the opioid epidemic. So we, we are sort of in a transitory period for like major public health issues with with recreational drugs uh, and, and major public policy failures with the response to those drugs. Um, I just said, you know, a film that I know we've talked a lot about on the show in the past, a film that we've covered on this show. Um, so I don't, I don't know how much there is to say about it. Cause you know, there's full episodes of us talking about this. Um, but again, I don't know, just a big decade for the quote unquote urban movie is, is the language they would have used yeah. in the, in marketing yeah. and boardrooms in the nineties. Right. Yep. Uh, black cinema is like becoming a more important part of American cinema in the nineties. And so you have, you know, this film menace to society set it off. Like you have all this, this mid early to mid and even into the late nineties, like baby boy and shit like that. Which again, another another uh, singleton joint. I'm gonna um, get you, sucker. Well, yeah, and then, but uh, of course you have like these parody films that are like mm-hmm. speaking to '70s black exploitation films, uh, and then there's "Don't Be a Menace to South Central" while you're drinking gin and juice in the hood. I think that's the title. Something it's like long yeah, yeah. title. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so like even in the moment that you have these like these urban life stories ha- happening, you also have the parody of that coming. So like I, again, I just a lot is happening for, for black storytelling and filmmakers in the nineties. And I think this is a good film to kind of address that and talk about it while again, allowing us to talk about the material conditions of the 1990s. Like what is going on in, in, in South central Los Angeles? What is going on in, uh, with recreational drug use in the United States? Uh, and this, you know, of course opens us up for different lanes to talk about sort of public policy in the 1990s and the eighties and on sort of what does this decade represent as a moment in, in sort of the history of an ongoing crisis? Uh, and, and, you know, how does that impact people who are not, you know, necessarily using drugs, but are impacted by sort of the, the widespread, uh, public health issues that, that, that come up with, with these drug epidemics. And, and again, we talk about the law enforcement angle and, and sort of their failures uh, of imagination of, of how to deal with this problem. Um, yeah, good movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so week six is where we move next. And so I'm transitioning now uh, as we've set some context and uh, just some sort of cultural moves that are happening into genre fare, different kinds of genres. And as you guys have mentioned before, independent cinema becomes its own kind of genre. Another thing that's forming internationally as far as genre is the international art house film. And so for my example for that film would be Alvis Kiristami's Taste of Cherry, uh, an Iranian film. Uh, produced and uh, sort of released in France, uh, I think it ended up making ten thousand uh, dollars. It made no money at, uh, at the beginning, but then it up ended up winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Nice. Uh, it is a story of a taxi cab driver looking for someone to bury his body after he commits suicide, uh, which is pretty dark and pretty heavy material. Using non-professional actors, uh, Kirstami himself is also on screen as the cab driver, and uh, they have these conversations with him in his cab. He's just going to get one of these people to finally bury him uh, when he. Does 
dies, maybe. Uh, I won't tell you how the film ends. It is an incredible movie. Sounds like uh, a Kiarostami movie. It doesn't it, though. Yeah, uh, I want to know and, about him. And also sort of like uh, that sort of art house auteurism of the mm-hmm. 90s as mm-hmm. well. And so this film from 97 does a lot of that kind of lifting for me and is an interesting sort of uh, exploration. And uh, the sort of Iranian sort of uh, rogue filmmaker who's sort of like off the records making these kinds of movies and his sort of production uh, policy. There's no script really. There's no uh, it, 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 it's, it's a real sort of organic coming together and it's also real guerrilla filmmaking at the same time and his need to do that in order to make these films in Iran. And so uh, Karastami's uh, Taste of Cherry uh, comes in in week six for me. What's on going on for week six for you Arthur? Well this is a follow up to last week uh, in talking about Michael Bay and and the blockbuster uh, because we got to look forward to a new tentpole model uh, and one that is inevitably shaped by comic books. And so uh, we're going to take a look at Blade. Nice. uh, Good. Which shows the studio that there's still juice to be squeezed out of the comic book orange. Um, You know, the Batman franchise had taken a dip commercially, critically, um, and so to see something like Blade show up, R-rated, bloodshed, violent, brutal, little martial arts inspired, right, and found an audience and showed studios that, hey, maybe there's still something here. And Marvel, and, you know, maybe in hindsight, the worst decision had sold off all those movie rights to save themselves. Yeah. Uh, Seemed like a good idea the at the studios. time. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, we get blade, which, uh, leads us to X-Men, which leads us to Spider-Man, which leads us to Iron Man. Uh, and so I think the modern tentpole model is dramatically shaped by the, the arrival of Wesley Snipes as blade. This little action that movie, movie that could. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is fun, which is very comic booky. Um, with a good cast and mm-hmm. delivers a, a lot of fun and a lot of thrills for moviegoers and, and a great sequel by Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. So yeah, and and so it showed that there's still blood to be had in in these movies and <laughs> these stories that we can tell and we can tap into if we take it maybe a little more seriously than the last couple of years did. So. Blade. Very good, very good. What's going on in uh, week six for you, Dalton? Well, we can't talk about the 1990s in America if we don't talk about uh, Waco and Ruby Ridge and the Murrah building and the the bombing. And I think the best way to address that is Falling Down from Joel Schumacher. Good call. I like that. That's Uh, a good call. Yeah, sort of the quintessential uh, aggrieved white male entitlement film. Uh, which we talk a lot about uh, aggrieved entitlement on our Falling Down episode. Uh, again, a film we've covered on this show, but a, a film that I think is like an essential 90s movie, a film that predicts a lot of the struggles to come in the ensuing decades, uh, and, and a film that sees white middle-class masculinity and understands that it's having a crisis because it is never was really that relevant to begin with and is becoming even less relevant as we enter late stage capitalism. And what do you do with these people that have been told the world is their oyster and are starting to bump up against the reality that that is simply not the case? And how do you navigate the, the violence that can be contained within individuals who might be uh, dealing with this cognitive dissonance? Um, Yeah, a really interesting film. And again, a film about a guy that doesn't think he's the villain. 
uh, mm-hmm. which makes it a film that's kind of tricky to talk about sometimes. If, if you don't have your media literacy hat on, you might miss that D. Fins is the bad guy of the film because, you know, he is also the protagonist. And, and having a protagonist that is also villainous can be a little confusing for people yep. sometimes. So I think this would be a good film. I like uh, that. Not just for, yeah, the the sort of relevant to like current events in the nineties, but also just like a media literacy text, like good to kind of examine these sort of uh, violent protagonists, these sort of nefarious protagonists and like, how do we deal with them uh, as a film going public? And how do we think about, talk about, write about uh, these kinds of characters without Mm -hmm. like getting too lost in the sauce and, and becoming Walter White with it and, and, and get it where people just get completely lost in the text and the charismatic villain uh, sort of like, uh, cast a spell over the audience and they lose sight of what the, the thing is even about. So again, uh, because it has such deep empathy for this character, which I think the closer, the further we get from the nineties and the closer we get to, let's say January of 2021, the harder it gets for media to have empathy for some of these people because it, it becomes very much a, like a, a political head headbutting thing. You know, it, be, yeah. it becomes about uh, virtue signaling, uh, whatever those virtues might be, you know, be, whether it's conservative, uh, uh, liberal, uh, more left than liberal, whatever it may be, um, uh, this this film allows us to kind of interrogate what's going to happen in the twenty teens and twenty twenties with a little bit more empathy because we're we're still at the beginning of it, and I think it's easier for people to address this without completely losing their minds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Uh, just a quick editor's note, our neighbors are mowing, and so I don't know if that's picking up on the recording at all, but <laughs> if it is, just a heads up, that's what's going on in the background. Sorry about that. My stomach is not growling that hard. No, mine is, though. Is so it? it actually is. Well, let's wrap this up. All right. Uh, number seven, <laughs> week seven for me, moving into, again, more proper genre fare and the uh, rise of Japanese J-horror. And uh, oh, there's cool. a number of examples that one could use, but Takashi Miyake's Audition is a movie that continues to fast. I think it's uh, maybe it is. I don't I think know. that's how I've always heard yeah. it. Takashi Miike. Yeah, well, that guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> audition, uh, a film in which it's all about. It anticipates uh, dating profiles and Tinder a little bit because he's auditioning um, girls to date because he's a widower. But he's uh, sort of put together this faux movie shoot that he's trying to do, and in so doing, he falls for the wrong girl. We'll say no more than that. And uh, I can fix her. Uh, <laughs> uh, man, she fixes him. Uh, anyway, it's a good time. Uh, insofar as being totally terrified and disturbed is a good time. And so Japanese J-horror becomes a huge thing throughout the aughts. And, uh, and this is not the first instance of this, but it is one of the more interesting instances. And so uh, 99's audition would be uh, what comes in for my J-horror entry, uh, looking at genre around the world at this time in week seven. What's going on in week seven for you, Arthur? I think in week seven, I want to start to have a conversation and it, it'll probably pick up another time before the class is over. But I want to start considering um, the idea of the cult of the director. I want to start thinking about the impact of something like uh, the birth of IMDb and message boards and forums and these sort of online conversations that begin to shape the canon in a new way. Um, And so I want to start thinking about American O'Tours. And again, the 90s is really a sort of seminal moment for 
this idea as well, the commercial tour, the tour of commerce, these ideas of directors with their names above the titles, uh, thanks to the rise of, of people like QT and Soderbergh in the early 90s, um, who gain a following uh, and can kind of do no wrong in a certain way with their movies. Uh, and, and so the sort of person I want to highlight here, though, is uh, PTA. And we, okay. I want to look at Boogie Nights. And I want to talk about PTA's rise, his kind of place within all of these conversations uh, as a uh, burgeoning filmmaker in the 90s who's uh, doing some interesting things and uh, I think takes a little bit, you know, he's he's getting some cult notice. He's got some critical acclaim, uh, you know, but he's kind of in the footsteps of some of these other guys who are just a few years ahead of him mm-hmm. in, in notoriety and fame, I think. Uh, but he, I think, is one who is probably helped strongly by certain online communities and things like IMDb, which begin to cultivate a new canon of important films with the IMDb Top 250. And so I think that's what we would look at and start to talk about and start to consider uh, is the idea of the commercial auteur and the auteur of commerce, these directors who become known quantities like a QT, like a Spielberg, um, who are widely known, uh, and also these these directors who are you know making one for the studio and one for themselves uh, kind of jobs as well, uh, which becomes a, a pretty you know predominant fashion in the aughts and and on. Uh, now with guys like Nolan and Lowry who are doing this sort of filmmaking as well. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson, though. And I want to talk about the state of the American O'Tour in the 90s. Well, I think I'm going to do something similar with my next pick, Arthur, um, because I'm interested in a guy that is, you know, a, a little bit of an earlier school than PTA, you know, mm-hmm. comes from an older class of filmmaker. And you really see in his career the kind of the unfolding of the next 20 years of filmmaking and like how things are going to change for the auteur and how, how, how auteurship is going to morph because of, uh, budgets, because of studio, you know, scared money, um, how things are going to change. We're going to look at Michael Mann's heat, Mm, uh, which lets us do a lot. Number one, it lets us look at one of the coolest action movies ever made. Right. Uh, number two, lets us look at one of the most interesting crime dramas ever made. Uh, and the fact that this film is both of those things is like a, big reason it has had the cultural legs that it has had because it's not just an action movie it is also like a sprawling la drama uh that is also about cops and robbers so it's got a lot going for it and i I think it is interesting again especially you know we just talked about falling down and and, then thinking about sort of white male violence uh thinking about late stage capitalism and again you know this is a story that uh man's been clacking around for years you know he's got the tv movie version of this film uh, with a, oh God, what is it called? L.A. Takedown, I think is what the mm. TV movie version is called. Uh, and it's, you know, basically the same story uh, with, you know, scenes exactly the same. Just, you know, a bet- better actors, more money. So it's it's kind of fun how we can look at his career starting with, you know, things like Thief and the pilot episode of Miami Vice and just kind of move through his career. And again, focusing on Heat, of course, but sort of looking at Michael Mann's career and like what happens to him after he like he gets him so much clout that he's like spends the rest of the 90s and early aughts as sort of a Oscar director pivots back to like thinking person's action movies in the aughts. And that well kind of dries up and all the way into the 2010s with Black Hat. He's, mm. he's trying to make these thinking 
these thinking person's action movies. And we, we start to see that genre kind of dry up on him. And, and we start to see that not be a, a lucrative business model anymore. And I think it, it allows us to kind of examine, you know, one of America's great, the, one of the genres that America most excels at, the action genre. And we can kind of look at how that changes in the 90s to the 2000s. And again, with things like Blade that Arthur's already mentioned, like sort of the 90s, we really do see this shift from like, grounded action movies to more bombastic and and fantastical action films and and again i think this film like lets us look a lot about the material conditions of the 1990s like we can kind of talk about bank robberies how that's not really a thing you can do in the 21st century uh, as effectively Mm -hmm. uh why why is the you know the people that uh, heat is based on are guys that were active in chicago in the 70s you know they're based Mm -hmm. on a real crook and a real cop but Mm -hmm. a very different time period Mm -hmm. and so uh, we really get a lot of fun into the 20th century stuff too when we we look at heat and and sort of a pre-internet law enforcement and and how those things are going to change um and again with de niro and pacino we sort of see two of the late 20th century's great american actors at the height of their powers before a sort of a decline in talent and, and ability to pick good scripts. Uh, so really is sort of a, a monumental moment for both of these actors and an important, I, I get really an important American film, truly, I think. Uh, and again, it's a three hour bank robbery movie. How, how, how does it become an important American text? Good question. You'd have to ask Michael Mann that one. Yeah, very good, very good. I like that pick a lot. I'm going to keep it action as well, and I'm going to Germany for this one, and the movie that anticipates The Matrix, uh, that is Run, Lola, Run by nice. Tom Tickver, in which... Uh, a later collaborator of the A Wachowskis. later collaborator, yeah. I mean, so you see the influence already there, uh, that they're, they're, they're not influencing one another so much because, obviously, The Matrix is in pre-production at this point already, but they're they're drinking from the same pools. Yeah. They're, 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 they're definitely finding inspiration from the same kinds of sources, and and so uh, in Run, Little Run, you have basically uh, she's got 20 minutes to uh, get 100,000 Deutschmarks and she ends up having extra lives, extra chances to do that. So it's got this video game stuff. There's an animated sequence in the middle of it. It is a it's a it's a exhilarating. It's a very fun time. It's cheerful, um, despite the fact that, you know, she loses a few times uh, in the course of this. But it's still a very, very good time. Very, very punk. Very, very 90s. And uh, just an interesting uh, instance of some of the stuff that's in the water of the world uh, before the Matrix even sort of hit screens uh, there. And so Tom Tickver's 1998 extravaganza run, Lola Run, coming in at a lean 80 minutes. Very good We love time. to see it. We love to see it. So what comes in um, for week eight for you, Arthur? Uh, I think uh, this is just kind of a weird aside, but I want to do re-envisioning the coming of age story. It's a genre that I love quite a bit. Um, and so, uh, this movie looks at taking the genre and, and kind of the urtext of the time, I think, stand by me, which is this very nostalgia driven and Hey, look at how yesteryear was and how we look at the days of yesterday, uh, and modernizes it and urbanizes it, uh, and takes it to boys in the hood. I'm so uh, glad we both had it on yeah, the list. I yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, just a great marker of the 90s and and storytelling and youth and uh obviously a certain uh cultural bent on it uh but it also you know directly references uh stand by me in the beginning uh and then does something very different with uh that uh genre and for that i think it's unique i think it's interesting and i think it's a standout uh also uh one of the great movie names uh, with uh, 
Furious. Oh, yeah. Furious Styles. Styles. Furious Styles. Yeah, what a great name. Um, one of one of truly cinema's great movie dads. Yeah. And so, man, Boys in the Hood, good stuff. Uh, check it out if you have not seen it. But that's where we would go next. All right, what's coming in uh, on week eight for you, Dalton? Uh, let me see, because I've been jumping around a lot. So next up we have, oh, of course, this is what we have next. So the 90s were a horny decade. <laughs> Yes, they were. Uh, for those of you who were born after 9-11, you might forget, but this country used to fuck. Uh, <laughs> we were pretty good at it, too. All the Puritanism aside, from 1970 to 1999, it was, uh, well, it was all out. It was all out there. Uh, we, we used to know how to have a good time. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then Osama bin Laden knocked down our two big uh, phallic symbols and uh, nobody could get it up anymore, I guess. And so we never started, forget. Never forget. Uh, we started to make superhero movies and those people aren't allowed to kiss for some Very reason. Chaste. Yeah. If superhero, they don't have time for relationships. It's They're so, saving the world. Comic books are so horny. It Except for one Robert Downey movie. Yeah. It's just it doesn't make any sense to me that Who I, I, the this character. is a total sidebar. Comic books are horny and it's weird that comic book movies are not. Anyway, I haven't seen a lot of like the the erotic thriller classics of the 90s, unfortunately. Uh, so I, I have You're a, missing out on a good time. I know. So I've had to go to 1999 again, where we're going to talk about the end of the 90s once more. When we look at Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Good call. Now, we're looking at the 90s and the end of the 20th century. I think it's important to look at uh, a quintessential 20th century film. An incredible Christmas movie. Uh, one of the greats. <laughs> one of the great movies about how do you deal with your family on Christmas. Uh, ignore them uh, if you can uh, yeah so with this film we have maybe the least horny movie about sex uh, or the most horny depending on who you ask and sort of what narrative or thematic tracks you want to most pull on but this is a big decade for, for the erotic thriller I mean you have things like uh, Body Heat or no that's 88 isn't it um, anyway, it's a genre that sort of really gets going in the 80s and, and has some carryover in the 90s. Uh, there's that one with Willem Dafoe and Madonna. That's a weird one. I've seen that one. Not a good movie, as I recall. Though. <laughs> uh, but throughout this decade, you, you really have this genre that uh, is, again, a continuation of a trend that was happening a little bit earlier and even harkens back to like the er earlier parts of the 20th century and like film fatales and noir and all that kind of stuff. But with this film, you really have something to me that like is a good synthesis of this sort of end of an era stuff we're talking about with the 90s being the birth of something new. Uh, and again, like, I think it's fun to sort of watch Kubrick uh, put a punctuation mark on his career and his life with this film. And uh, again, an interesting end of the 90s film right right tom cruise can't get laid he simply cannot and what an you just won't see him make a risk like that in his career after this point he uh basically sacrifices his marriage on the altar of cinema and uh is so <laughs> ruined by it that he can never look like a cuck ever again uh he, that's what the movie's about. The movie's about a guy who can't stop cucking himself. He can't stop <laughs> thinking about the fact that his wife was attracted to somebody else, and it's driving him insane. <laughs> and it kind of speaks to this moment in American film, like this this last gasp of sexuality before we enter a couple of decades of like supreme chasteness, and not even like chasteness, but like aromanticism, right? Like I, 
the the rom-com will have its last guess, gasp in the next decade. So I think this is a really interesting film. Again, you wouldn't call this film a romantic comedy by any stretch of the imagination, although if you're a real freak, maybe you will. Uh, but again, like it, we really start to see the end of something that was essential, an essential part of American movies with this. Like we, we start to see um, a, a change in tastes and mores, I guess, because this film really does sort of speak to our our repressed American sexuality and sort of our discomfort with sex and sexuality, because so much of this film is like in Tom Cruise's POV and is about people throwing themselves at him and how deeply uncomfortable it makes him, even though like he's got this, this itch that he needs to scratch. Like he, he feels so certain that what he needs to do is cheat on his wife, uh, to, to restore, you know, his sense of control and power in the relationship or something. <laughs> and that's what's so fun about it is you can really speculate with yourself, like what his psychological motivation is because it's, it's it, opaque. It's opaque, but it's maybe the best performance Cruz has ever given mm-hmm. because it is like really him showing a lot of interiority. And again, like as we talk about the end of the movie star era, I think this is an especially an interesting film. And, and again, like the Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise's relationship aspect of it, we don't even have time to get into, but is such an interesting part of the story, uh, especially if you start, you know, talking about the Church of Scientology for even 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, really interesting movie, uh, both in terms of like its filmmaker and its stars and, and sort of its genre trappings. Very good, very good. Uh, so as we're closing out, I wanted to move into the realm of international co-production. Uh, this is a film with uh, Ghana money, Ethiopian money, and a little bit of American money as well. It's called Sankofa from 1994, in which a... Uh, self-absorbed African-American female model goes to uh, the coast of Africa for a photo shoot and then is is sort of a magical realist film. She is, in some senses, transported back to the West Indies where uh, she experiences the life of slavery and imprisonment. And it's a one-timer, guys. I'm going to tell you right now. It's uh, currently streaming on Netflix. It's a very, very good movie. It was, at one point, very, very difficult to find. And so I'm glad distribution rights have sort of uh, made a little bit more available. Um, And uh, she becomes something of a revolutionary uh, by the end of the film in this sort of magical transport uh, that is there. But I wanted to have something from the African continent uh, on the syllabus, obviously, for international film. But also I I wanted to sort of think about the period piece and the ways in which these various kinds of funding come in uh, for Haligara, the uh, Ethiopian filmmaker uh, who uh, produces this film. So uh, Sankofa is coming in at week nine for me. What's week nine for you, Arturo? Um, these last couple of movies aren't, I mean, they're not necessarily movies I love, but I think they're both just vitally important to the nineties and understanding, I think American cinema in the nineties. And so here at number nine and week nine, I, th- I we got to talk about Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I, you I got think to. we got to, uh, especially in this kind of a class that I'm doing. Um, and so, uh, I think we do, we do Pulp Fiction, sure. I, you know, I, I think it's That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those movies that. I think if you need to, if you want to have literacy of the '90s in American cinema, you have to see Pulp Fiction because uh, not only as a standard bear, but also its influence and its impact on mm-hmm. on movies and QT's impact on almost every film school bro director uh, who f- comes after him. Right? Yeah. Uh, so many people try to emulate Pulp Fiction. They try to emulate Reservoir Dogs, and uh, it, so I think we just talk about him. We talk about his aesthetic, how he impacts, you know, using this nonlinear 
ensemble that revitalizes uh, Travolta's career, uh, gives us Uma Thurman, uh, and, and has some interesting stuff along the way uh, with some other big named actors, mm-hmm. Walken and and uh, uh, Willis, yeah, Bruce Willis, and so it's cool stuff with like postmodernism and yeah, pastiche yeah. you can do as well. We're breaking the fourth wall, we're drawing, you know, we're doing all kinds of fun stuff, and and so I, I think it's just important to talk about and look at and not downplay, you know, whether you like him or not, whether you believe in canonization or not. We have to talk about how impactful Tarantino is, and so we talk about. Uh, Pulp Fiction. And it's the French New Wave Strikes Back. I mean, that's part of it, too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, Very good, very good. What's coming in week nine for you, Dalton? Uh, What's coming in week nine for me is a film that's similar to Pulp Fiction, is really indebted to other films, and and definitely is helped out by film literacy, uh, and that is Spike Lee's He Got Game. uh, Nice. Starring Denzel and... um, Oh, my God, I can't think of the basketball player's name. Ray... Ray Irving. No. Jesus Shuttlesworth is a character name, which <laughs> talking about great, good, names. What a great, great character name. names. Um, Ray Allen. Yep. Ray Allen. I think you're right. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Ray Allen. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Arthur. Um, so, so this really does speak to like the American lineage of sport films. And I'm not really the big sports movie guy, but to me, this mm-hmm. is like one of the end all be alls yeah. because it is like so much a, a sports movie about sports movies and like, what do people chase when they chase sports stardom? And we've, I've talked a lot in this syllabus about, you know, reckoning with late stage capitalism, which is just entering its, you know, we're, we're in the early days of late stage capitalism, you could say, with the, with the 90s. And this is very much a, a film about trying to win that game and the game that exists on top of the game, right? The game is basketball, but there's another game that exists on top of basketball that Ray and that Ray Allen and Denzel's characters have to play. Uh, and, and how does that function and who a lot, a lot of qui bono questions in this film, which I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love that aspect of it, of like Jesus Shuttlesworth Shuttlesworth is about to become one of the best basketball players to ever do it. And who's going to benefit from that? Is he going to benefit from that? Is his father or is, or is somebody else? And, and it's the, the impact of sports in America is so strongly felt in this film too. Like literally what college, not even NBA team, but what college this kid is going to go to has enough impact that it gets his dad out of prison for a week. Like the, the warden is able to put his dad on a fucking furlough from jail, not jail prison, uh, for homicide because of basketball, because of sport. And that is, does not I know that's that's kind of a big leap the film asks you to take, but it doesn't feel that far fetched. It no. really doesn't. There are moments that feel like a little like, okay, he'd probably be supervised a little more closely than this. But by and large, it is a film that exists in the real world, uh, with with a, with the exception of a few leaps it asks you to make. Uh, one of my favorite Spike Lee movies, so this kind of allows us to just talk about him and his career and him in the nineties coming out of his great success in the late eighties and sort of the not necessarily blank check status he has in the nineties, but definitely the young, the young hotness status uh-huh. he has in the nineties and like what that allows, allows him to do. Uh, and again, this is late in the nineties for him. So this is really kind of a, I don't know. And to my mind, this is one of his, like his blank check films because it really is, uh, formally very spikely. And yet like is, is asking the audience to kind of trust him to do some kind of unconventional stuff. I really think of that opening, montage that is sort of about the game and the game's impact on america at large uh and and really kind of a bold opening for a, a you know what was a, a 
studio film, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to have. Yeah, just a great movie, and it allows us to talk about sort of basketball and its place in sports history in America in the 90s. Like, it's sort of really taking the place as the sport, uh, thanks to a lot of, like, some of the greatest players ever ever to do it in the 90s. Um, So, yeah, I I think really just interesting. Again, like, gets me to talk about sports, which I don't really ever do, uh, and yet I I would be foolish if I tried to pretend that athletics are not important, uh, as important as film, and often more important than film. So uh, really, really fun movie that I, I think would be useful to talk about. Very cool. Very cool. So week 10, we're at the end of the semester, friends. And uh, I do have a treat at the end. I tend to do it that way uh, in most of my classes, uh, just something a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun. But also thinking about the filmmaker and uh, filmmake, uh, filmmaking work that transitions itself to international and eventually American filmmaking process. I really was looking hard for a South American entry. And it turns out the 90s was a dearth, really. I mean, there are films being made in South America, but they're not finding that distribution. They're not finding that kind of audience outside their sort of local venues uh, there. So I expanded it to Latin America. And so I, I have a Mexican film uh, for this, and this is Guillermo del Toro's Kronos, nice. uh, which is a vampire movie, del Toro, uh, doing a lot of that great work, but also Ron Perlman uh, for a little bit in the film and uh, the, his sort of uh, foray into horror. So it's a second horror entry of the uh, semester, but uh, more thinking about that in terms of cinematic careers and how that sort of gains him legs to find his way on over into the States uh, and also Spain uh, with his work with uh, Devil's Backbone and uh, Pan's Labyrinth and then eventually that work uh, with Blade Two and uh, Mimic and uh, then just on into the aughts and his incredible run there uh, up to winning the Oscar very recently. So uh, Guillermo del Toro's Kronos is what finds its way there, which is a brilliant little movie and yeah, a cool lot of, movie. just a lot of fun uh, for a low-budget Mexican film. So well, what's going on the last week of your semester there, Arthur? I mean, I think this is the first movie I put on the list. Um, again, it's not a movie I, I necessarily love, but I acknowledge that it is arguably the uh American movie of the nineties and that's the matrix. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you can go through maybe and, and look at every decade and, and uh, there are probably a movie from each decade that sort of not only defines that decade, but also influences the future. And, and so that's the matrix. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've spoke to it at large on this episode and in the past um, so much owes a debt of gratitude to the Wachowskis and to the matrix, um, visual effects, storytelling, franchising. I mean, may, most major movies kind of post 1999, I think owe a debt to, right. And it still yeah. influences people today, like the Daniels. And we get something like everything everywhere all at once. I mean, it, it, it is one of the, you know, capital movies you know american great movies and Mm -hmm. uh, i I don't know that whether you like it or not you can downplay how important it is as a movie and a movie of the 90s and to kind of be a 1999 movie i think is very poetic for it to come at the end of the decade totally right before you know all of the fear of the new millennium of y2k what's going to happen to us the the concerns of technology, the concerns of new media, the concerns uh, of the future of who we are as a country, as a nation, as a society, as a culture, uh, for 99 to sort of be the culmination of that and this to be the movie that ties into all of that, speaks to that, and looks to the future of all that. And I think it's a very 
you know, poetic place for it to land uh, and to be as influential and as important as it is. Uh, so yeah, we we have to talk about. I mean, you have to talk about the Matrix yeah. in a movie class about the '90s. You have to talk about it. I'm definitely glad I didn't save it for last yeah. now, since it was your last. Yeah, um, I obviously I agree. Yeah. So my final pick, I think, is is really nice that I'm going last because I think it's it does both of uh, something that both of your films do. Uh, it kind of speaks to internationalness of the '90s, and it speaks to sort of the the genreness of the '90s and the predictive power of film in the 90s. Again, this is talking about film work, filmmakers that see farther than we do uh, and will bind us with ancient logics. <laughs> we are talking about Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Yeah. Uh, my man predicts 9-11, predicts the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, predicts America's uh, slip into full-on fascism. Uh, if you disagree with me, I'm sorry. You know, you can take that up at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. <laughs> but... Uh, if you look at the 20th century and the 21st century, uh, you will see certain elements of American culture and society uh, and policymaking that certainly reflect the tenets of fascism as laid out by Umberto. I can't think of his last name. Um, Echo? Thank you. No, is that it? Umberto Echo? The, yeah, they uh... wrote the 14 the elements of fascism or whatever. Uh, I'm not sure that's the right person. I'm thinking of the novelist from Argentina. Uh, okay, that's who you're thinking of. Who am I fucking Anyway, not important. Uh, I'm, we're talking about film today. Mm -hmm. uh, but this film is, again, we, we've got Paul Verhoeven, this Dutch filmmaker who gets this American sci-fi military novel, looks at it and says, this is boring and bad. What if I turned it into a satire about American military culture? And boy, does it work like gangbusters. Uh, and talking about sports, it even includes a little bit of like American sport culture and yeah. how that is tied up with our, our sort of our violent rhetoric that we have as a nation. And uh, that's just a, a, an interesting aspect of the film that, again, like the more you watch this film, the real, the more it really does unfold, I think. Uh, Those and, space and, football scenes are fun. They're fun. Oh, they're yeah, a, yeah. a blast. But they also speak to sort of the ways in which we like uh, encourage young people to be violent, uh, which I think is very funny. Uh, and I mean, there's a, a definite tragedy to it, but it is also very funny. And again, like the, the ways in which the film continues to be funny, uh, is it, so great. Like when he, uh, when Rico tries to enlist and the guy turns around and goes, yeah, the mobile infantry made me the man I am today. And you realize he's a quadruple amputee. Uh, I believe is with that. I think that character's got no yeah. legs and a robot hand, uh, mm -hmm. and no other and a stump on the other hand. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really a film about like the internet too, uh, and state media and how, like how disinformation is going to be a huge part of the internet. Uh, I can't believe Whoa. this film called that. Yeah. And the ways in which we use dehumanizing rhetoric to think less of, uh, the opposite side in a military conflict. Again, all mm -hmm. of this stuff is all over Starship Troopers, and it comes from a novel that is by a literal fascist. Robert Heinlein thought military culture was superior to civilian culture and thought we should reorganize American society around military culture. I don't know what to call that other than fascism, folks. That's what it is. Uh, and uh, Paul Verhoeven saw that, and because he came from a country that was occupied by fascists when he was a young boy... Uh, he he took his own personal history and intertwined it with a world history and with uh, speculative history, and and made one of the great science fiction works of of the 20th century in mm -hmm. my mind. Out of 
one of the most annoying science fiction works of the 20th century. Uh, so that's my final pick for how I would uh, films I would use to teach the 1990s. Very good, very good. Well, that's the 1990s, according to Good Trash. Uh, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got way longer, like 30 movies longer. But uh, it's a good time. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, any final thoughts, friends? Uh, I can't think of no. anything. Yeah, I feel yeah. pretty good about this. Yeah. I do too. I feel like we did a good job. Yeah, we tried to, you know, uh, it was I think it was good that we did this. You know, we all had a lot of 90s films in our top 100. So that was why we didn't just do a our favorite movies in the 90s. Right. Yeah. Um, I think we wanted to tackle this more academically than just like, what do we like? Mm-hmm. Which is what last week was. And which what is next what week? next week will be. Exactly. Yeah, correct. Next week is going to be maybe the most subjective week. We are just going to be looking at our top 10 favorite actors. Now, that is actors, period, not actors. Actors slash actresses slash non-gendered title for the job of actor. People who do the thing in front of the camera. Alive or dead, working or retired. Who are your favorite actors? Uh, That's what we're going to look at next week. Uh, If you want to talk to us about the 1990s, your favorite actors or anything else, you can find us goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for any long-form feedback. We're at Good Trash Media on the socials if you want to message us there. And if you want to help support us financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM for more information on that. And stay tuned next week. You don't have any homework, and we don't have any homework. It's just actors, baby. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.